Well, he is risen. The content of this message is coming to you in no small measure, courtesy of my wife. This morning, after laboring at fair length over the weekend on this message, I arrived here with the PowerPoint safely stashed back at our house. And I thought, oh my, now what do I do? So Velma very gamely volunteered to zoom back to the house and get the USB drive and all the rest of it. Now, what makes this disconcerting for me is this is exactly now the second Sunday running that I have done this. I was in Henley last week and did the identical stunt, but of course, it's a bit far to run back from Henley at the last minute to get your PowerPoint, so I had to uh, improvise. So I think probably what might happen is today on the way home, my good wife might drop me off at Tumbling Bay over here, um, and uh, we'll see how I get along. I might fit right in. So this morning... I am privileged and we are privileged to celebrate the great moment in redemption history. The morning God broke Jesus out of the grave. You know, it's a jailbreak. That's the way to think of it. He sprung his son. And we're going to see that that idea of someone that's trapped somewhere because he's our representative, not because we deserved it, not because he deserved it, but because he was representing us and he had to enter into the plight where we are in death. That's why he's in that tomb. And the details about this big boulder having to get rolled away. You know what that is? That's like in the old American westerns when they spring some guy out of jail and they blow the the prison door, the the, the front door off the jail. And the, the door has been blown off its hinges. That is what that moved stone means. Because God, on the morning we're remembering, raised Jesus. It's a jailbreak. So let's see how it all fits together. Why the resurrection changes everything. For the New Testament writers, it did just that. This is the turning point in history. What really happened on that morning? Let's look. One thing we can look at is that it brought, that is the resurrection brought, a new beginning. Now, we will see this if we perceptively look at the way the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, play the scene out. And there's some juicy tidbits in here. When you see it, you think, hey, he's trying to tell us something. It may not always be sitting flat on the surface, but it's there. So, here's some examples. One is the way they show us the timing of this event. In Jesus' own predictions of his resurrection, he consistently timed or located his resurrection as being on what he called the third day. That phrase actually had some history in Jesus' time. Because if you go back to the law and the prophets, Exodus 19, we, uh, God tells Moses, tell the people to get ready for the third day. Because I'm going to come down onto Sinai. It comes back again in Hosea. I don't have the reference, but third day in the old covenant came to represent a moment of God breaking in in a decisive way. And so Jesus describing or anticipating this event uses that phrase, the third day. However, 
The resurrection accounts that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us, and they, of course, are writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. They are much, very much in tune with all that's going on. They, note this, they dispense with the, quote, quote, third day terminology. And they shift to something else. They keep saying, on the first day of the week. It's very consistent. Have a look. A few times they add in another detail. It's the first day of the week, like when the women come to the tomb and all that. And it's very early in the morning. Or um, Luke 24, 1, at dawn. Well, why this shift? Why didn't they, in locating this glorious event in time, why didn't they just stick with the masters, with Jesus' original phrasing? They felt impressed to use a different term. Here's another clue to what's going on here. That's the location. We only really get this once. It's in the fourth gospel. John, John 19, verse 41. He is buried and he is raised in a garden. There's a few other juicy details. We're going to wrap this, see how this comes together in a moment. In the Emmaus story, we're told that at the moment when the risen Lord, whom the two disciples don't recognize initially, they're trudging along from Jerusalem to Emmaus, very downcast. Someone comes walking up and walks along with them. It's the risen Jesus, but they don't know it. So they walk along talking, and then it's getting late in the day. They say, why don't you stay with us? We have a place we can stay. And he says, yeah, okay. He comes in. They sit down for a meal, and at the table, he picks up the loaf and breaks the loaf open. And in that moment, (gasps) now Luke could have said they all of a sudden recognized him. But he doesn't say they recognized him. That's not the terms he uses. And Luke's a very careful writer, uh, a medical doctor, formal education, probably the best Greek in the New Testament we get in Luke and in Acts. He's very careful the way he puts things together. And he doesn't just say, all of a sudden they realized it was Jesus. He says, and their eyes were opened. What's that all about? In John's account, We're told in John 20, the disciples are locked inside this upper room and with the door, they're hidden in there with the doors locked because of fear of persecution. Then Jesus, all of a sudden, he doesn't need doors, thank you very much, just all of a sudden, there he is. And we're told he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Why does it say he breathed on them? What is going on? Now let's see if we can suss out what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are telling us in the way they unfold these events. I want to suggest that what's going on is a new beginning. The first day terminology where they dispense with Jesus' own Phrasings of on the third day, on the third day, which, as we've said, that has a rich heritage in the law and in the prophets, they all of a sudden dispense with that. They move from third day to first day because they see that what Jesus is doing is taking the world back to Genesis 1. 
God, through Christ, the risen Christ, is giving the whole world a new beginning. It's like day one again. Is that good news? We sure need that. The garden location that John 19.41 gives us, well, of course. Where else have we read about a garden? When things went slightly wrong. Well, God has now stepped into another garden to put them back right again. Is that good news? Luke's little detail. Their eyes were opened. Of course, as we've observed, he could have simply said, all of a sudden they realized it was Jesus. They saw that as he he picked up the loaf, they looked at the nail prints in his wrists or something like that. Well, whatever it was that triggered it, nail prints or just the supernatural power of the spirit, whatever it was, he says their eyes were opened. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a quote from Genesis, word for word. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they were forbidden to eat at their own peril. Genesis 3, 7 their eyes were opened. And they, moment, and they instantly knew everything was wrong now. Their eyes were opened and they, what, they knew they, what, they were naked. And they ran from one another because they were so embarrassed. They ran and hid from each other and from God. Their eyes were opened. But now, <laughs> I have to stop asking you, is this good news? Because... <laughs> Everything here is good news. But now, descendants of Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's race, all of us live in that sense of shame. We all know what it's like to feel ashamed of who we are. There's something toxic about me as a person. That is shame. We we feel somehow incurably flawed. That's shame. We're embarrassed. I want to hide all the time, cover up with fig leaves. Now, instead of... Staying in Adam and Eve mode and our eyes are opened to see our nakedness and feel so self-conscious about it. Their eyes are opened and they see the risen Savior. He is the answer to the mess Adam and Eve brought in. Do we see it? This is God's solution. The answer to our shame is the risen Christ. Let's write that on our brains. You know, I could stop preaching right now. I'm not going to. But, but we, even if we just got this, the answer to our shame is the risen Christ. Because he pulls the gaze of our souls. A.W. Tozer defined faith as the gaze of the soul. I've always liked that phrase. And Christ, the risen one now, he pulls the gaze of these two disciples' souls. These guys are totally discouraged so disenchanted, so disillusioned because they had all these hopes that Jesus was the one that would redeem Israel. Well, he was. They just didn't realize how. And they were turned in on themselves in their depression and disappointment. The gaze of their souls was on their souls. So they were in Adam and Eve mode. They were looking at themselves. All of a sudden, there in front of them is the risen Lord. And then their eyes are opened, and he pulls the gaze of their souls off of themselves and onto him. If that can happen for us, it'll change us forever. We stop analyzing ourselves and taking our pulse and thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It gets us out of all that. Our eyes are on him. Does that sound like a good way to live? Our eyes on him. Now, another juicy bit. This thing of him breathing 
on them. It's in John 20. They're locked away in this room, quite literally locked because they're afraid of arrest or persecution. Jesus unexpectedly appears there in the midst of them. And he breathes on them. There's a couple of things to note in this little scene, John 20. One is he breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, once more, we're revisiting Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, the creator comes and gets, I don't know how much clay he used, I don't know what Adam weighed, but he takes all this clay and molds it into a man. Probably taller than I am, but... But initially, it was, Adam was nothing more than a clay statue. Formed, you know, looked like a man outwardly, but nothing more than a clay statue. And then the Lord comes, we're told, Genesis 2, and breathes into him the breath of life. <laughs> These blokes hidden in the upper room perhaps were not much more than a bunch of lumps of clay at this point. They were discouraged. They were disenchanted. They were afraid. And then in a replay of that moment in Eden, God comes and breathes on them, breathes into them. And he anticipates what's going to happen at Pentecost because he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Someone suggested this is an hors d'oeuvre of the day of Pentecost. And he, ah! Remember Aslan in the Narnia stories? Remember him? 